message I call, Who Says So? Who Says So? Mark chapter 11 and uh, verse 27. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him, and they said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, our consideration of Mark's gospel and our Sunday morning services bring us to this last week of Jesus' life, what we call uh, commonly the Passion Week. Passion in that context refers to suffering. And, of course, it's going to end up with Jesus' suffering and death on the cross. That's Friday. On Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, a highly prophetic and significant moment. He was declaring his role as the son of David, similar to what Solomon as the original son of David had done when he rode into Jerusalem on a mule. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey in proclamation of himself as the Messiah then, the King of Israel. On Monday, on Monday, Jesus cursed a fig tree and pronounced a curse on the temple. You'll remember how that he overthrew the tables of the money changers and cast out those who were buying and selling the doves and the sacrifice. He was confronting the religious racket uh, that had developed and it was led by the high priest himself. Uh, so that these sacrificial animals were sold at exorbitant prices, two or three or four times the going rate. Their money could uh, not be used to pay the temple tax that was required of every Jewish male who came to the temple, and so they had to change that money over foreign money to that uh, sanctioned Jewish money. And of course, it was an exorbitant, exorbitant rate of exchange. Jesus confronted that twice. He did it first at the very, very beginning of his ministry. Now here he is, the last week of his life. He does it again. He shut the temple down. He began to teach. Mark didn't give us a sermon. He just gave us the text. Passage in Isaiah, passage in Jeremiah. My house should be called of all people a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. Isaiah, Jeremiah. After that day of preaching, then Jesus went out on Tuesday morning. He comes back. He came by the fig tree that, was, that he had cursed on Monday morning. Tuesday morning, it was dead. Supernaturally dead. Dried up from the roots. This was a picture of Judaism and its fruitlessness and of the judgment that was coming upon them. He stopped at that fig tree then, and he gave the disciples that incredible lesson on, on prayer. And that brings us to our text today. After that lesson on prayer that he gave them at that dead, dried up from the roots fig tree, he goes into Jerusalem, they walk into the temple, and the passage says, as he came in the door, came in the gates, of the temple. He was met by a delegation. We'll consider these events in the next few passages then under two obvious headings. There is a, a, a delegation, and that's what we're going to consider first. We'll look then at this delegation, and then there's an illustration, a parable, a story that he tells them. The delegation. Verse 27 speaks of the chief priest, 
the scribes and the elders. These were high officials. It wasn't the high priest, but it was the chief priest, men of authority who were certainly in the inner circle of the high priest of Israel. Now, the high priest was not just a religious figure. His name was Caiaphas. Uh, he had his own military or police force, the temple guard, as they were called. We'll see them come into play when they arrest Jesus. That's the soldiers that were sent, the temple guard. He had his own police force at his command. He had authority over them. They could arrest people. They had their own jail. They could try people then. They had their own court. The scribes were the legal side of this, and the elders were just the next step down. Together these men would form a court, which until the days of the Romans had literally the power of life and death. You could be tried before this court and stoned to death. It was the great Sanhedrin, often simply in Scripture referred to as the council, the council had 71 members, composed of the high priest, a deputy of sorts, a deputy high priest, an assistant, and then 69 uh, general members. And those general members were composed of, you guessed it, chief priests, scribes, and elders. This was the highest of all the Jewish courts. It represented their supreme authority. And the men who were waiting on Jesus when He walked in the gates of the temple that day were an official delegation from that court. This entire body hadn't said anything to Jesus on Monday. Mark told us why. They feared the people. But it didn't mean there was no response. I'm sure they had had an emergency session. (laughs) They had had some discussion. What are we going to do? This delegation was there on an official task. No doubt about it. Jesus had told them that these chief priests and elders were going to come. They didn't mince words, or they asked then a twofold question. By what authority are you doing this, and who gave it to you? This is a simple and a direct question. It is asked publicly. It is asked before the required two or three witnesses. It gets to the question that any child on any playground knows well. Who says? Who says? Who says you could do this? It's an honest question. Jesus had walked into the temple in Jerusalem at its busiest and most important time. It was packed with pilgrims. He had stopped all the money changing. He had stopped all the sacrifices. He had effectively shut the place down from top to bottom by prohibiting people to carry anything in and out of the temple. So the fact that Jesus is now interacting with this group was not a surprise. In fact, all the way in Mark, back in Mark chapter 8, Jesus told them it was going to come, and he called these exact people out by name. Not so much their personal names, but who they were, their titles, the elders and the chief priests and scribes. The Son of Man, he said, must suffer many things and be rejected 
by the elders and chief priests and scribes. We see then the inquiry from this official delegation. And now notice Jesus' response. But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question. Then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people. For all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, We, don't, we do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now this is an incredible response to their question. It must have been frustrating to these people to deal with Jesus because every time they tried to trap him with some carefully planned out question, one of those loaded questions that we all loathe, Jesus returned with an answer that they hadn't even considered or prepared for at all. So they came to him asking him, by what authority do you do this? Who told you you could do this? And Jesus answered them with the question, you answer me. Who told John he could do what he did? Now, I'm going to pause here for a moment in the narrative to make a couple of important points. Let's remember, number one, that these people never one single time caught Jesus off guard. Not one single time. Every time the religious leaders came to him to try to trap him, Jesus was ready with an answer, and it was always an answer that shut them up and shut them down. He was never, not ever, not a single time caught off guard. Not once. Number two, Jesus never asked anybody for permission to do anything. Not a single time. Not recorded anywhere in any of the gospel narratives. I love the story of the blind man in John chapter 9. The one who was born blind and they saw him and the disciples asked him, Lord, who sinned so that this man was born blind? And you remember how it played out? Jesus spit on the ground and made clay and rubbed it in his eyes. That would have been a great time for Jesus to say, Hey, Mr. Blind Man, do you mind if I rub some mud in your eye? He didn't even do that. He didn't talk to the widow of Nain and say, is it okay if I interrupt your funeral? He never asked. Not one time. Not one time in his entire life do you ever see Jesus asking permission of anybody to do anything. <laughs> Let me add a little point to that. Jesus still doesn't need anybody's permission. <laughs> Amen. Amen. He still doesn't need anybody's permission. So he brings up John the Baptist. John had come on the scene was widely, widely recognized as a prophet. And this same group of men had had their own encounter with him. It's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7. It's a lengthy reading. I'm sorry, kind of, but I'm really not sorry. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. And thing not to say within yourselves is John the Baptist. We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. 
And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. John the Baptist. The same group had come to him. He gave him a simple message. Repent of your sins. Repent of your sins. And conduct yourself and behave yourself in a way that shows that you have repented of your sins. Bring forth fruit for repentance. Later on in Matthew chapter 3, John, the same chapter, John would specifically identify Jesus as being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he would do this at the time of his baptism when he baptized Jesus. And there was also, not only that, but there was the sign of a dove that appeared to him in the very voice of God that spoke from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus brought up John for a very good reason. These people had not listened to John the Baptist either. Neither did they listen to the voice that spoke from heaven. So he answers their question with a question. Where did John get his authority? Who told him he could baptize? Did the council authorize John to do what he did? No. Did the high priest give him a thumbs up? No. Maybe it was Herod. Hey, Herod killed John. Wasn't Herod. The Romans, goes without saying, wasn't them. They really had only two choices. Either John made it all up on his own, and he was a liar and a lunatic, or John was sent from God with a message to give to them, and if that was the case, then why didn't they listen to him and do what he said? We call this the horns of a dilemma. How did they answer? We don't know. Two words. <laughs> that stung. Hard thing for them to say. We don't know. We can't answer. They'd had their chance. They heard from John. They heard his message. He called them out. He told them to repent. They hadn't done it. He told them of the Messiah. He pointed directly to Jesus as the one. Yet here was Jesus standing right in front of them. And they had not believed on him. So when they could not answer Jesus, Jesus would not answer them. But he told them a story. John chapter 12. The delegation, then the illustration. A certain man planted a vineyard. He set a hedge about it, digged a place for the wine fat, and built a tower, and let it out to husbandmen, and went into a far country. And at the season, he sent to the husbandman a servant that he might receive from the husbandman of the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. And again, he sent unto them another servant, and at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head. And sent him away shamefully handled. And again he sent another. And him they killed. 
and many others beating some and killing some. Having yet therefore one son is well beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir, come, and let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husband. And will give the vineyard to others. That's the story. He didn't answer their question. Because they didn't answer his. But he told them a story. And an astonishing one. It is. It tells a story of a landowner who planted a vineyard. This then is a vineyard started from scratch. You don't plant vineyards from seeds. You plant them, of course, from cuttings. And so they would have bought cuttings, carefully preserved them, put them in the ground very carefully, staked them out. Uh, He built a wall around it. He did everything that was associated with uh, providing for uh, the care of these new vines. He planted a vineyard. From scratch. I was curious, so I looked up and I checked it with several different websites. Uh, it takes about three years for a vineyard started that way to begin to produce grapes. Isn't that interesting? Three years. How long was Jesus' ministry? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? It wouldn't have perhaps produced a great amount on that first year, but there would have been some fruit. And the juice from those grapes would have been squeezed out and bottled up. So the owner of the vineyard then sent a a servant for some bottles of the wine. But instead of giving him that, they took his servant and beat him up and sent him back with nothing. Remember, this is an astonishing story because, you see, at that point, we would expect the owner of the vineyard to immediately take judicial action. They have beaten his servants. They have refused to give him what was rightfully his. He had every right and indeed the responsibility of responding to such an insolent and insulting act. Any court in the country would have sided with the landowner... But this landowner, this is an astonishing story. This landowner sends another servant. They didn't even talk to him. They saw him coming and they started chunking rocks at him. Can I say chunking? I did, sorry. They started throwing rocks at him when they saw him far away. And one of them hit him in the head. So he just decided it was time to go back and they laughed at him. Mocked him, scorned him. They sent him back shamefully and treated. That is, they made fun of him, laughed at him and his landowner. He sent another one. Things got serious. The next one was killed. Then he sent many others. And some of them were also beaten. Some of them were also killed. 
This is an astonishing story. No landowner would have this kind of patience with a group of tenants. You wouldn't. I wouldn't. Nobody would. We might let the first one go and send another. In some world, we might have sent another. But when that third guy we sent was killed, buddy, then it is on. It's on. It's time to call in the law. These guys are way out of the line. But instead, this amazing landowner in Jesus' story kept sending servants who kept getting beat up and killed and sent away in shame as they, these insolent thieves, these occupying landowners were mocking his servants and boasting of their power and laughing at the landowner for his ineffective responses. They had taken his property by force. They were emboldened by the lack of consequences. Landowner made one final move. I will send my son. He had one son. I will send my son, for they will reverence or respect and listen to my son. Let me pause in the narrative to remind you this is just a story that Jesus is telling. This doesn't mean that God was up in heaven sending Jesus down saying, you know, maybe Israel will listen to my son. That, that's not, don't think that. God never thought that for a minute. This was prophesied long before blindness was happening unto Israel. God knew. God knew. There was no, never any doubt. I don't think, not for a moment, that God was in heaven thinking that perhaps the Jews would listen to Jesus. The landowner in this story did. This is an explanation then of what this particular landowner was thinking. And though it is astonishing, it does make a very valid point. This landowner has been amazingly patient. He has gone to extraordinary lengths that nobody else would go to. And when they killed his son, that should have been, or killed his servants, that should have been it. When he killed more of his servants, that should have been it. But he gives them one last chance, the son. Implicit in the act of sending the son within that story was the assurance that if they would have respected and listened to the son, those interloping farmers would have probably been forgiven of all that they had done, even for the servants that they had beat up and killed. It's an astonishing story. Amazing. We wouldn't do this. No landowner would do this. We wouldn't send our son or our heir, our only son, into such a situation. We'd send in the Calvary SWAT team. We'd send in all the lethal force we could bring to bear. These farmers have been killing people. It's got to stop. When the farmers saw the air, their response was predictable. Hey, if we kill this guy, then the vineyard will be ours. And so they did. Finally, Jesus says that landowner will take the action that any of us here today would consider to have been long overdue. After they killed his son, he'll destroy them utterly. And give the vineyard to someone else.
That's the story. Jesus didn't explain the story. He just gave it to them. And He followed then the story up with Scripture. He gave them the Word of God. Have you not read this Scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hold on Him. But feared the people for they knew that He had spoken the parable against them. And they left Him and went their way. The passage that he quoted was Psalm 118, 22. I'll read it again just to say, just so you'll see it. This wasn't something made up. This was written by David hundreds of years before. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Our familiarity for the, for the most part with the stone... And the work of stones goes to bricks which are mass-produced. But Jesus is talking about stones. Sometimes the stones were hewn or cut. And uh, in today's world, a a wall made of stones might show a lack of uniformity. We do do that by design. And and you've seen some beautiful walls that are made out of cut stones that were not made uniform. But most of the time in Bible times, the, the stones were made the same. So that when you looked at the stones, each one was carefully hewed out so that they all had exactly the same dimensions. They were cut to show uniformity. A stone then that was rejected by the builders, the experts, would have been rejected because it was a stone of irregular size. If it was cut stones, they cut them to be the same size. And I'm making a box like this, but actually the stones that they cut most of the time would occupy about half of this building when they cut those stones around the temple. They saw, look at those great stones. I don't have any, I can't even tell you how they got them up on the temple mount. I have no idea. We know they cut them in a quarry that was outside Jerusalem. How they got them up there on that mountain, I don't know. But when they made a wall and they made them of cut stones, the stones were uniform and a stone that was rejected then was rejected because it did not have the same dimensions as the rest. It would stand out. It wouldn't fit in that built wall. The other kind of stones that they used were just natural stones. And there were a lot of them that were made then and still today of just uncut or unshaped stones so as to preserve a more natural look or just to save money. Uh, There are several places in Little Rock where you can drive around and you will see houses and walls that are made of natural stones. They just stack them up just like they were. And they made a wall out of them or they built a house out of them. There's a city in North Arkansas you can drive through that the whole main street is made up of those buildings made with stacked stones. they just natural stones, just put them in place, put mortar on them. And and that kind of a building, a stone that was rejected by the builders, was rejected though for a similar reason. Here's a stone that is so big, maybe so wide, so thick, they're not going to cut them, but they look at this stone and say, no, I can't use this one. This one won't fit. If we put this one up there, it's going to stick out way too far. 
This one don't fit. We can't use this one. So a cut stone, if it was cut too large, they'd look at that and say, no, we can't use that. This one doesn't fit. If it's even a natural stone, they would look at that and say, no, that one's way too big. It would stick out too far. It, it would maybe even destabilize the wall. We can't use this one. But the psalmist says it simply. The stone rejected by the builders becomes by God's decree. By God's decree. The headstone of the corner. Or as we call it, the cornerstone. The cornerstone. Because you see, when you've got a stone like that that's larger than the rest, maybe it's taller than the rest... uh, It's fine if it's the cornerstone. But the cornerstone has to be set in place. Then you put all the other stones. You build all the other stones around the cornerstone. You You don't add the cornerstone. You put it down and all the other stones are added to it. You don't make the, the cornerstone fit the rest of the wall. You look at that, well, man, that's too big. Let, let's, let's, take, let's take some off of that one. It's too big. Mm-mm. You put the cornerstone down, and then you adjust all the others to make them fit the cornerstone. The Jews understood this. Jesus didn't have to explain it. We understand it, too. You know what it means to us today? It means exactly what it meant to the Jews then. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. You know what that means? That means you cannot build Jesus into your life. You must build your life around Jesus. If you try to build Jesus into your life, He will not fit. You will reject Him just exactly like the Jewish builders did. He stands out too much. He takes up too room. He's going to make the whole thing unstable. The only way that you deal with Jesus Christ is to accept Him as what God has made Him to be. He is the cornerstone. Everything else in my life then has to be built around Him. And by putting this scripture together with this story, Jesus was telling them that they would not only reject the cornerstone, just as the prophet David had said, but they would reject Him with growing intensity and even hostility to anyone who pointed out their wrongdoing. parable illustrates the astonishing patience of God and that he put up with these people, the Jews, stealing their lives from him, stealing the fruit that was belonged to him, but belonged to him with beating and killing the servants that he sent to them, the prophets, to get what was rightfully his. And God help us. It's just true. Now as it was when Jesus said it. 
And it applies every bit as much to us as it did to them. You see, we all walk around on God's earth and breathe God's air and drink God's water and use the life He gives us to make increase then that He blesses us with. The earth is the Lord's, the Bible says, and the fullness of the increase of it. And yet we have the audacity, uh, sometimes individually, sometimes collectively, sometimes as a whole nation full of people, we have the audacity to thumb our noses at God. And mock Him and mock the servants that He sends to warn us. This is today's humanity ever bit as much as it was the Jews of old. We are in grave danger of rejecting the cornerstone because it doesn't fit into our building project. But it is the cornerstone which means our entire building is to be built around it. What an incredible message Jesus preached at such a pivotal and momentous time. But as it struck the Jews in that day, it strikes us today. It struck me this week. A lot of times I had to quit typing and just bow my head and pray and cry. Oh, God, we've done this too. You see, the, the, the way it comes to us in the, it's in the application or understanding those two incredible words, rejected or marvelous. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous and higher. The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. You see, that's where it comes to us. That's where it came to the Jews. It's still the same today. Is the stone rejected? Why is it rejected? (laughs) Because it don't fit. And this comes to us individually. It comes to us as families. It comes to us as a church. Have we got so much going on in our life and we're trying to fit Jesus into it somewhere and over and over and over and over again. You say to him, I don't have room. It won't fit. It's been true in my life, and I know it's been true in yours as well. It's supposed to be the other way. God has declared that Jesus is a cornerstone, and He tells us to build our lives around Him. It's the only way that we'll ever get Him in. Is to say, this is my Lord Jesus, and I'm going to build my life and my family and my church. We're going to build on Him. We're going to connect ourselves to Him. We're going to orient ourselves to Him. He is the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. And Jesus then is in one of two places. Either He's rejected because He don't fit, or He is marvelous because we built our life on Him and around Him. And we know what a wonderful blessing it is to live that way. This is marvelous in our eyes. Oh yes, God, you're right. This is the best way to live. I can't imagine living any other way. 
both Mark and Luke, or both Matthew rather, Matthew and Luke, give us one more thing Jesus said at that moment. He said, whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but whoever it falls on will be ground to powder. That's Matthew 21, 44, if you want to look at it later, Luke 20, 18. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken. You see, the rejection of the stone doesn't make the stone go away. It's still there. We can fall on it. And that's what happens when we repent. We fall on it. And we have that brokenness that comes to us. Because we know that that stone has been rejected. But it didn't go away. It's still there. We stumble over it. We fall over it. We trip on it every time. We turn around constantly in the way. And finally, 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 we get hit so hard that it breaks us. And we get on our knees and we say, Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Come into my life. Be my Savior. And He does. He does. But the other alternative is one day that stone will fall on you. You can either fall on it or it falls on you in crushing, absolute, eternal judgment. Hmm. The response to Jesus' message that day is well documented. They left. Our response today can be the same. We can just leave. That's what they did. Such an incredible, such a convicting moment, such an obvious, such a powerful truth, and they just mm-mm, they left. We can reject it, or we can receive it. We can bow before heaven's king and acknowledge him as the Lord of my life. We can't change the past, but we can change our future. And I've got a couple of appeals I need to make, and I know we're past 11. Hang in here. Got a couple of appeals to make. One of these, to those of you who are still raising your children and have kids at home, I want to appeal to you today to listen to this message. You will never, ever be able to fit Jesus into your schedule. You're too busy and you've got too much going on. And if you try to do that, you're going to make the same mistake they made long ago. You'll do it again and again and again. You're not going to find time for that. You'll put the stone aside because you've got too much else going on. The only way that Jesus will fit into your family is if you make it so. Me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And you build on that cornerstone. I also want to make an appeal to those of you who are young folks. Many of you. Many of you in the building today. Your college age. You're approaching 18. I want to remind you something. And If your kid ain't looking at me, then poke him and make him look at me or her look at me. I don't know. I can get my glasses on. I want to remind you something. You are today, right now, you're still a product of your mom and your daddy's faith. But faith cannot be inherited. 
you are rapidly approaching the point, young people, where you are going to stand on your own two feet of faith. You will make your own decision. You will make your own choice. And it matters not to me. It matters not to you in this ultimate sense. How you were raised, your parents might have not been all they should have been. You might have had a lot of things in your life. And I'm telling you, you are going to be making your own steps of faith. And I challenge you, I appeal to you today to make that choice. I'm going to build my life on the rock. I'm going to build my life on the cornerstone. I'm going to put Jesus right there. And everything I do is then going to be built around Him. No, you won't always get it right. I've got on good, good long experience that God's got plenty of chisels around and we can knock some of those blocks out if we need to. We'll try to add a lot of things in there that aren't correctly oriented to the stone. God can tear those out and rebuild them. As long as the stone's in place. But it's when the stone's out. Maybe we start wanting to whittle it down a little bit. Let me tell you something. We're never going to be able to whittle that stone down. Jesus doesn't change. It's quite a story, isn't it? Quite a scripture. After all these many years, it reaches to all of us where we are. I want to ask us for a moment to bow our heads.